Welcome to the Mosquito Story Slam podcast, where storytellers have a chance to bite it live. This event was recorded in front of a live audience on July 13, 2016 at Wellfleet Preservation Hall in Cape Cod, Massachusetts. The theme for the evening was Busted. Lisa Yap. Lisa, it's really hard to get up first, so let her hear it. Yeah, Lisa. Uh, hi. Um, I was uh, born in Lowell, Massachusetts. You know the place. And I uh, lived in an apartment uh, with my two sisters underneath my Nana and Papa. And when we were 15 years old, um, when I was 15, my parents scraped uh, every penny together and decided to upgrade and move to a nicer town, Winchester, Massachusetts. We got into a W. (laughs) And um, unfortunately, the new home had two bedrooms. And we're thinking, gee, there's three kids, mother and father, two bedrooms. Hey, this is just not going to work, Mom. Dad, my father had a plan. He said, don't worry, we're going to blow out the attic. It's going to be beautiful, Lisa. We're going to have three new bedrooms and a bath. It's going to be fabulous. And he worked at it for six months. And he came home every night dirty, but he did it. And it was fantastic. We had a rec room, which was sort of, I'd say, the uh, 70s, the 60s version of Granite Counters today. You had to have a rec room. And um, it was great until one day we got a letter from the Town of Winchester Board of Assessors. And when my dad came home from work on the 610 train, He just walked into the house, he reached up over the refrigerator, got out his Manischewitz, poured himself a glass. We weren't Jewish, but my daddy loved that Manischewitz. (laughs) And he went in to open up his mail, and he opens it up and he goes, oh, cripe's sake, what's this? What's this, what is this? And he, oh, girls, get in here. We all come in and he goes, this is really bad. He goes, the assessors wanna come into the house. And if they come in and they realize that we have now five bedrooms and three baths, when I'm paying taxes on only two bedrooms and two baths, it's gonna, yeah, <laughs> we're gonna be a bastard and we're gonna be out on the street. I'm like, no, oh, no, no, this is life and death. He goes, girls, I'm counting on you. We're gonna come up with a plan and we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna keep our home. So about two days later, my dad did come up with a plan, and he came and gathered us together, and he said, uh, girls, we're going to plan. And what is it? What is it, Dad? We're going to hide in plain sight. They can't see it. If they can't see it, they can't tax it, and we'll be okay. And I said, all right, fine. You're going to keep the shades down, or can to keep it dark? No, no, too obvious. So instead, my dad got out a ladder, put it in front of the windows, climbed up at different heights to represent, you know, assessors that could possibly be very, very tall. (laughs) 
And he would look in the windows that were vulnerable, which was a word we learned during this time, and he could see the sight lines. And he would say, like, okay, you know, Lisa, go over here against the corner. Yeah, that's fine. Just suck it in a little bit more. Karen behind the china closet. Cindy in the hall. So, And we'd go room by room by room. And he would diagram it. And once he had that set, he would start drills. So we'd be sitting around totally impromptu, maybe doing our homework, reading Time magazine. And we'd hear, the assessors! <laughs> and we'd have to run and take our position. It was okay when my dad drilled us, so we were good at it. He knew those assessors had finished work by 4 o'clock, so it wasn't going to ever involve the adults. So after school, when it really happened for real, we were scared out of our minds. It was like when you're a kid and the doorbell rings, you feel like magnetically compelled to answer that door. You don't, you know, you think they can see through the wall that you're hiding. And it's really scary. But I got to tell you the truth, we got used to it. And we got real good at it. <laughs> Maybe even a little cocky. So one day, my sisters invited a friend over from uh, to have some Hydrox cookies at the kitchen table. Hydrox is the cheaper but, you know, equally good <laughs> Oreo. And uh, <laughs> the kitchen was very vulnerable because you had a porch door. You could hear it squeaking, thank God, a little warning system. And then you had a window and the kitchen table, so it was wide open. But my dad said, he trained us, he said, look, you hear that screen door open? you drop. <laughs> so it worked out perfectly that a 10-year-old could sort of lie right under the window, sucking it in and pointing their toes and not be seen at all. And at this particular instance, we heard, we're sitting there with my, with my sister's friend, Gwen, on the, around the table eating cookies. We hear the screen door. My sister drops. I pick her up, open the broom closet, stick her in, now she's in my place, so the only thing I can do is sort of ew it over her like this. Door still open. The kid is great. She doesn't freak out at all, doesn't even think it's weird. <laughs> when it's done, she says, whoo, what was that? And I said, what was the assessors? She goes, oh, okay. Like any kid would know. So it went on like that for about six months, and then about once a week for six months, seriously. But then, with time, another letter arrived. And we could see clearly. Now we knew who the assessors were. We waited for my dad to come off that train, reach up, get his Manischewitz, go in. This time we're all gathered around him. Dad, he opened the letter. What was it? What was it? And he opens that letter, and he says, girls, you did it. OK, they're going to tax us, but they're only taxing us on the two bedrooms, two baths. This is a family. <laughs> Thank you. All right, storyteller number two. Please welcome to the stage, Dick Marr. 
At the age of uh, 61, I decided to attend law school after having spent about 40 years in independent school boarding schools as an administrator, dean of students, director of admissions, coach, you name it. And I got fascinated at the law school in the criminal procedure course. Now that interested me because I viewed myself at a very early age as a white collar criminal. <laughs> I, I stole raffle ticket receipts from the church right across the corner from my house, the Catholic church. And I, I was busted by Dolly Conway, the neighbor who ran into me at the grocery store, filling myself up with candy and paying for it and telling my mother. Uh, so obviously criminal procedure interested me in, in law school. And we saw the movie about interrogation in, it was a good cop, bad cop kind of situation with two suspects who had been busted. And they put him in separate rooms and they lied through their teeth to each of them, saying that he's about to rat on you, to you tell me. And they finally squeezed one of the weaker one out and he coughed up uh, the truth. And I was laughing all the way through and my teammates in our, our section asked me afterward, my nickname was Lefty, Lefty, what was so funny about that? And I said, we do it all the time in boarding schools. That's the way the dean's office works. <laughs> and he said, uh, uh, I, I said, they said, you mean you don't trust kids? And I said, oh, we trust kids to act like 16 or 17 year olders. <laughs> they will lie if there's no smoking pistol. <laughs> <laughs> there. So having uh, thought about that uh, as a formative experience of mine, I have three short uh, stories about my busting white-collar criminals along the way. First, first two were relatively uh, uh, flimsy, so to speak. Uh, the last one a little bit more serious. The first one occurred on a um, Friday night. Actually, the first two occurred. One was... Uh, when I was a volunteer empire at the Little League in Marion, Massachusetts, which might be a clue, um, and I dressed up in my high school baseball uh, empire's outfit, which I had had because I had been a high school baseball empire. I had a black windbreaker on. I had a little black cap. I had my indicator. I had my little ball pocket, and I had black pants on. And I called the game at about 8, 8.15, because it was too dark to see. And I was on duty that night, so I walked down to the dean's, uh, uh, excuse me, to the where the uh, student union was. And I walked in to just get a feeling of what was happening on campus on a Friday night with no Saturday classes. Always a challenge. And I walked in primarily because what I took interest in is who immediately left when I walked in. And that set me up for the rest of the, rest of the night. Well, a student came up to me, Heather, and she looked at me, and she was a good friend of mine. I had just had her read Amy Lowell's uh, pat patterns in a chapel talk I had given earlier that week. She came up to me and she said, Mr. Marr, how could you do that? You ought to be ashamed of yourself. I said, what, Heather, what? And she said, look at you. I said, yeah. She said, you're all dressed in black. 
Yeah. Well, you're just going to go out in the woods and you're going to bust kids, aren't you? <laughs> so I pulled out my hat. I pulled out, I pulled out my uh, little ball bag. I said, Heather, I just came from empiring a baseball game. She said, oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> uh, episode number two, another Friday night, this time with uh, three of my baseball players at a, um, a different boarding school. And uh, I was on duty in the, in the large dormitory. And Friday night, again, no Saturday glasses always was a problem. Uh, I was making my rounds through the dormitory, and I walked into one of the rooms where three of my varsity baseball players were sitting in the room. And I was very close also to these three guys, and they looked guilty as sin when I walked in. And so I said, hmm, I think I'll just sit down, which is my custom, and just talk nonsense about the weather, about the game the next day, this or that, and, and, and see them squirm. Well, finally I looked across and one of them was squirming in his chair like that. I said, George, get up. What are you sitting on? He's sitting on a tub of vanilla ice cream that he had just stolen from downstairs <laughs> in, the, in the kitchen, okay? Busted. Uh, third one, I'm a, a coaching debate is up at Harvard in a national debate tournament. Uh, and I get a call from the dean on duty back at uh, the uh, boarding school. And she said, she said, Dick, you've got to get down to the Sheridan Hotel right away. And I said, why? And he said, well, one of the freshman girl's parents called, and they're really upset because the girl was supposed to be back home for the weekend. They were out of town. They came back unexpectedly. And this girl who was a freshman was nowhere to be seen. And I've checked around, and she's at the Sheridan Hotel, very close to where the debate was. <laughs> So I took the debaters, we piled in the van, and went over, and I walked into the Sheridan, walked through, got to the, uh, the counter, asked the uh, uh, deskman what room Jose Andrade was in, uh, his, his room. And uh, the long and short of it, they went up, and there were 25, 30 kids up there. They were uh, uh, booze, underage kids, drugs, you name it. It immobilized our dean's office for the next 10 days. There were so many different cases to sort through. Okay, now I learned quick. I learned just a couple of things. Number one, you have to, uh, you, you have, to have a, a, a perspective about this and you have to keep a sense of humor about it. Number two, John Knowles quotes a French philosopher in a separate piece, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Okay, and number, number three, uh, you don't necessarily have to apply the book when you're dealing with people. You can use your common sense and take everything into consideration. And as an epilogue, when I, uh, <laughs> when I left uh, uh, Tabor for the, oops, for the <laughs> For the next 10 years, I received about a dozen postcards from all over the world, from the Sheridan in the Philippines, the Sheridan in Portugal, and Croatia, you name it, saying, Coach Maher, Dean Maher, having a great time over here in the Philippines. Wish you were here with us. <laughs> This will be, I believe it's Katie Owen. All right, Katie, yes. Okay, so 
Over Memorial Day weekend, um, my family and I went to go see my cousin graduate from high school in Alabama. And um, we were going through airport security. Um, and you know, usually I travel with my dad and he's usually like really, really nervous. And this time I was traveling with my aunt and my dad was gonna take my grandmother in separately, my 92 year old grandmother, and we were gonna meet them at the gate. Um, and so my aunt and I were going through we, you know, we had checked our bags, we checked in, and I was like, this is gonna be great. Like, you know, I'm not gonna have to deal with my dad's nervousness. This is gonna be awesome. <laughs> and so we were, we're going through security, and I'm like, okay, all we have to do is get through this, that's it. Um, and my bag goes off, and that had happened to me before, so I didn't really like think anything of it. The lady took aside my backpack, and she was going through it. She was, you know, looking through my books, and my book's on tape, and she's going, what, this is, this is a great book, honey, this is a great book. <laughs> How do you like it? And she's making it, so I'm like, it's good, it's good. And, and um, so she doesn't find anything, and she says, wait, wait right here. So she goes over to the ladies at the screen. They, they have the image of when the alarm went off, and they discuss something, and they come back over, and she comes back, and she says, let me see that purse. And I guess, could you? This thing is so tiny, like I can't even close it. And she says, let me, let me look through that. And she's looking through it and she's dumping out everything. And it's really embarrassing in here because I have receipts in here that are like six months old. And so of course now I'm like extremely embarrassed that everything is really disorganized and she doesn't find anything. So she walks back over to the, the screen again and discusses with the people about, you know, what did you see? And, and she comes back over and she says, it's definitely in there. And I said, I'm thinking, like, what's, what's definitely in there? And my, my aunt's whispering to me and she's going, you know, they really think you're a terrorist or something. And I was like, I know, do I look like one? Or? And so she goes, she goes through it again. And in this front pocket, she pulls out like a tiny pocket knife. I don't have it in here because I was really paranoid about putting it back in here. But it was like this big and she pulls out the pocket knife and my aunt, she, as she's pulling out the pocket knife is going, oh, Katie! And this is, this is my aunt from Woburn, Massachusetts and she says, she says, she's from Vermont. They don't know what they're doing up there. And I said, and I'm going like this, I'm, I said, I, I, I didn't know that, that that was in there. I, I, I didn't know it. And she was, the security lady, she looks at me, she goes, mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, of course, she allows me to go and, you know, she said, you can, you can, you know, send this back to yourself. And um, I said, okay, I'll do that because the knife does not belong to me. And I, 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 I said, I can't, I cannot, um, I cannot, like, you know, leave this here. Um, and so then I'm th I, I have to tell my aunt that, you know, the knife was actually given to me by a friend because I was at his dorm late at night and he said, you don't have your, your pepper spray, so, you know, take this. So I, I can't, I, I'm, I'm thinking, what's worse? Did they, they can't know that I was at a boy's dorm late at night. And, and so, so I, of course, I fill, I fill out the sheet and I send it, I address myself, you know, to send the knife back to myself and I have to write in the description on the envelope, like, this is a knife. Like, I am, I brought a knife. 
Um, and so I, I, I come back to my aunt, um, who had been waiting while I was filling out the information, and um, she said, you know, I, I just texted your dad there. <laughs> she said, they're at the gate waiting for you. And, um, you know, for a person who's worried about everything, he, all he replied to this was, ha, ha. <laughs> so I didn't know what that meant at that point. You know, did he know why I had the knife at that point? Um, and so I, I'm thinking in my head, you know, as long as my 92-year-old grandmother doesn't find out, it's going to be fine. Because if she finds out, she's going to be talking about it the entire time that we're in Alabama. Um, so my aunt and I are walking, you know, from security to the gate. And, um, you know, we get there. And my grandmother, my dad was making a phone call off in the corner, and my grandmother was sitting by herself at the gate. There was no one around, and she was sitting there reading the Boston Globe. And um, this is, she, my aunt goes over, and she doesn't notice us, and she taps my, my grandmother on the shoulder, and she puts down the newspaper, and she looks up from my aunt to me, and my aunt to me. And then she turns to me, and she goes, Caitlin! And I haven't, seen, I haven't seen my grandmother since Christmas. And, you know, this is, this is Memorial Day. First thing she says to me when she sees me, she turns to me and she goes, Caitlin, how could you be so stupid? <laughs> and that's how I was busted. <laughs> Can we please have to the stage Roe Osborne. Roe. So it was um, October of uh, 2011. I just finished working on the music for a, a, a CD of original music. And um, I'm a bass player and singer-songwriter, and I needed, to, I, needed to get, I needed to do the art for the cover of my, of my CD. And I, I had an idea. I wanted to get a picture of me sitting on my bass, looking out at the water, and, but like everyone else, I hated having my picture taken. Um, but the weather was perfect. It was, it was a, it was this beautiful Saturday. My wife, Lori, was, um, she was available to take pictures, great photographer, and the tide was right, so off we go. We packed up the, packed up the base, packed up the camera, headed down to Linnell Landing in Brewster. And uh, it was a partly cloudy day. As soon as we got there, of course, the sun went in. So it's and, and I I went I unpacked the base unzipped it out of the, out of this is this is my big upright base out of out of its case and I set it down very gingerly in the sand then I sat down very gingerly on on it and Lori's click 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 and she's going around we'd, we'd get up and we'd look at the pictures and they they would just they it wasn't what I wanted I wanted I needed to be out on the flats to for the picture I wanted so. Off we went. We, I grabbed the base, she grabbed the camera, and we, we, if you guys know the, the flats, we were about probably two or three hundred yards offshore, uh, off the beach. And um, the sun came out, beautiful. Uh, this time I set the base down in, in the uh, wet sand. Did the same thing, sat on it, got the pictures, looked at them, they were, they were beautiful. Um, Lori said, okay, I, I want to get a picture of you playing. So I picked up the bass and brushed the, brushed the 
the mud off and you know started playing and the thing was like sinking in in the thing but and so we we figured we we're just about done and as we were finishing up we looked we looked over and noticed that there was a bunch of people coming down on onto the uh at the at the at the edge of the at the edge of the beach and we'd seen these big you know people come down for weddings people come down for family pictures whatever but these people they started walking out onto the flats and they're you know, they're walking and, and all of a sudden this this big tall guy with a button-down hat, and he's got his he's got his pants rolled up around his knees. He comes striding over to me. He's like, you know, very determinedly coming over, and he goes, "What the hell are you doing out here?" And I'm like, "I'm I'm just taking pictures for my CD, you know." And he said, "We're here for my father's memorial. He was a huge jazz fan." So I walk out of the parking lot, look out. And there's a freaking upright bass player, 200 yards offshore, ready for the ready for the memorial. So, I said, I said, well, would you like me to play? Duh, you know. So, so I said, okay, all I need, if you want me to play, all I need is um, some sort of a big shell or a rock to put the end pin on, so it won't sink down into the sand. And he calls over this this very attractive woman comes over with this basket full of shells. And what was what was going on was all the people there were, were taking a scoop of of the this the gentleman's ashes and scattering them as the tide was coming in. So she she brings the basket over for me, and I'm looking in the basket, and it's all these frou frou shells. You know, it's like nothing like you would find on Cape Cod. I needed a big ass clam shell. You know, I, something that wouldn't sink in. So I, I'm digging, 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 and sure enough, the bottom of there, here's a, this big clamshell. Perfect. Set it down, started playing. I'm not a great soloist, I, but I was like jamming, doing a little blues stuff, doing a little bossa, you know, trying to, trying to do whatever I could. It was wonderful. Lori was snapping pictures of the whole thing. Afterwards, everyone was so gracious and grateful, and they came up and they and they were thanking me. This guy's widow came up and grabbed my hands, and she had tears in her eyes, and she was said, "This is this was just wonderful, wonderful, wonderful." We all walked back together um, and exchanged contact information so I could send send them the pictures. And I was putting the base back in the case, and I grabbed a little pinch of, of Lonell Landing sand and I threw it in the f hole, and so you know as a as a memento for the day. And um, that night, Lori and I were going to a 50th birthday party right here at Press Hall. And so we were, we were at, the, at, the, at the birthday party, and we were in line to get wine. And I look over, and I said, Lori, this is the show lady. And she goes, nah, can't be. I said, yeah. And I said, and there's the guy. And he's got this crowd of people around him, and he's saying, yeah, and when we got out onto the flats, there was a freaking upright bass player and a photographer. And he, and, and he looks over and he goes, oh, my God, there he is, and there's, and there's the photographer. So, so all, the, all that night, we kept bumping into each other, laughing and, you know, talking, talking. And, and uh, at one point, the, 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 uh, the lady with the shell, the, I, I will call her the shell lady, came, came over to me and, and said, you know that shell you picked out of the out of the basket. I said, yeah, I said, I needed a big ass clamshell for, to, so that my base wouldn't sink. She said, no, she said, well, my father-in-law, my dear departed father-in-law, used to pick up 
piece, things off the beach and he used to glue them into these, these wooden frames and to decorate his beach cottage. And he said, um, there was one particular shell that wouldn't stick and it kept falling off. And he tried to stick that shell up a dozen times and it just kept falling off and falling off and falling off. And she said, I was on my way out the door this afternoon to go to the memorial. I picked that shell up and I put it in the, in the basket. And he put that shell there for you. Okay, welcome to the stage, Susan Foley. Hi, I'm Susan. Uh, I have two kids. Uh, Jack, my younger son, has special needs. And he has given us so many lovely, wonderful gifts and a few really, really bad challenges. One of which is he was not a good sleeper. So early on, you know, my husband and I would come up with various theories about why he wasn't sleeping. Often when the other person put him to bed, related to how they put him to bed, probably this is what you did that created this problem. So lots of theories throughout the years, and really he didn't sleep for years. So as we got more and more tired, more and more frustrated, we bought heaters for his room to make it extra warm. We got extra blankets. We would put him to bed in lots of layers. Maybe he's cold and he wakes up and can't go back to sleep. And then we realized that wasn't it. So then we'd put him to bed in just few clothes and maybe he's hot. <laughs> so everything we tried. So one night, my husband, who's a neurologist, decided maybe he has sleep apnea. And he's not sleeping because he has, he's waking up during the night. So, you know, I realized this is you grasping at straws and trying to be a know-it-all. And he doesn't have sleep apnea. <laughs> he just doesn't sleep well. But he was insistent, and so we were going to do this sleep study. And so I'm arguing, you know, I really, we want to hook him up and have him lay in a bed and not sleep all night in the hospital, and this is insane. This is not going to show us anything. What a waste of time. No, no, no. This, you know, we should do it. All right. So I said, well, you know what's going to happen. So it makes sense for you to bring him to the hospital and you be part of this. And he said, well, he does sleep better with you. Great, so this is total waste of time that I have to do. So we get to the hospital and it's where he works. So it's all his colleagues who are very kind and you know they put all the leads in his head and we get him in the bed and he's watching videos and I keep saying, this is the last movie and then you have to go to sleep and you know. And so finally it's super late and I turn off the videos and I'm holding his hands and he's trying to pull at the itchy things and I'm, you know, go to sleep, just go to sleep, just go to sleep. So he finally falls asleep. I fall asleep next to him. A couple hours later, beep, nurse comes in. He's pulled off a lead. They hook him back up. I hold his hands. I get him back to sleep. And this happens three or four times during the night. I'm just ready to kill someone. <laughs> so finally, it's all over. He gets up around 5.36. I ring for the nurse. I say, I, I really cannot put him back to sleep. We are done. Do you have what you need? And he said, yeah, yeah, you know, that's probably enough sleep. We're, we're good. So I talked to my husband later, and I'm like, you know, I just really feel like this was a huge waste of time. But they say they got what they needed, so when will you know if anything comes of it? And he says, well, you know, they'll have to watch the video and the audio and watch the EEG readings. And I said, what video and audio? 
And he said, well, while he's sleeping, they have a video. And, and I said, no. And he said, yeah, yeah, well, sometimes if something weird happens, they'll go back. And, and I said, and he said, what did you say? And I said, well, the fourth time we woke up, I just, I was so sure we were wasting our time. And I was just holding his rotten little hands and saying, I hate your fucking father. I hate your fucking father. So, luckily, he said, oh, they, they've heard way worse than that. It's okay. <laughs> and the good news, so he doesn't look bad, is he was right. He had sleep apnea. <laughs> he now sleeps great. <laughs> so it was all worth it in the end. <laughs> we have a Jerry Riley. So, I'm not a lawyer, but I want to talk to you about a legal term. It's one you probably heard of. It's called statute of limitations. And it's, it's an amazing thing. If you commit a crime, even a very serious crime, and you don't get caught for a certain amount of time, boom, you can never be prosecuted for that ever again. It's kind of an amazing idea. Um, and very serious crimes have, you know, you can, you, this, this applies to, but there's a few crimes that there is no statute of limitations. And uh, murder, I'm pretty sure there's no, no statute in murder. Um, and I was guilty of a crime with no statute of limitations, and I want to tell you about that. Um, I was 11 years old, and uh, I lived in this, this house, uh, it was a kind of big house, uh, it was tall, three stories high, and up in the attic, there was a little skylight window, and I discovered that it was a very small window, but that it opened, nobody knew this. Um, so I could get out there and get out on the roof. And the roof was very steep pitch, it's three stories up. Very dangerous place for an 11-year-old to be. Um, but I used to go out there pretty regularly. And you know, you might ask why, and it's because I was 11 years old and I couldn't. And that was like the only reason. So I was out there one day, I come in and I uh, climb in the window, hit the floor, and all of a sudden I hear my mother, you know, downstairs, you know, yelling for me. I go running downstairs and she says, what were you doing on the roof? Now, I don't know why, I, I mean, I just, I just I, I'm not proud of it, I, but I just looked her in the eye and said I wasn't on the roof. <laughs> she says, I know you were on the roof. Mrs. Hogan just called me from next door. She looked out a window, she saw you on the roof. And I was like, oh shit, busted. Um, but I just doubled down. I said I wasn't on the roof. <laughs> My mother was livid at this point. She said, you were on the roof. Mrs. Hogan knows it. She saw you on the roof. And she said, you were on the roof. And I just, I was not on the roof. So the thing is, at this point, my mother got way madder. And it was because I was just looking her in the eye and lying in her face. But worse than that, not only was I lying to her, she knew I was lying. And not only that, she knew that I knew that she knew I was lying. So there really wasn't even any point in lying. Um, but I would not back down. I just, and she was just browbeating me. And I was like, I wasn't on the roof. I wasn't on the roof. Um, and I never backed down. Well, some amount of time went by. In fact, it was a while. It was, uh, in fact, it was years. I think it was either 34 or 35 years <laughs> later. Um, and I was, I was at my parents' house. I have a big family. All my brothers and sisters are there. It's Sunday dinner. We're finishing dinner. We're all having a good time. We're telling stories. My brother tells some story. He's a teenager. He gets in his trouble. He gets caught and this and that. My sister tells some funny story about this and the trouble she gets into. 
And my mother says, oh, do you remember that time you were on the roof and Mrs. Hogan called? And I said, oh, yeah. That went my mother said, you admitted it. You admitted it. I've been waiting. <laughs> so I was definitely busted. So I, I want to tell you, when you leave here tonight, you know, if you, like, go across the street to the parking lot, smash somebody's windshield and grab their, you know, iPad, or, you know, on the way home, you stop at the Cumberland Farms, you grab the money out of the register. If you don't get caught for, you know, a few years, that's it. But if you ever lie to your mother, there is no statute of limitations. <laughs> and we have the person known as Brian coming to the stage. Brian! Woo! Uh, uh, okay, to continue with the legal theme, sort of. Um, several years ago, uh, my wife and I uh, drove, we, we visited the Clinton Icon Museum, which is not really what you expect to find in Clinton, Massachusetts, but we visited the Clinton Icon Museum, uh, and we had to drive west on Route 2 to get there, and in the town of Berlin, Mass, we passed this two-story dilapidated, abandoned motel. And um, one of the things my wife and I bond over is a love of creepy buildings. And so we were like, bookmark this, we'll be back. So we go to the Icon Museum and we come back. And on the way back, we, we pull into the, to the um, motel. And as we're pulling in, about 100 yards down the road, I see that there's a straight trooper who has pulled somebody over for speeding. And so I say, well, you know, I think I'm just gonna wait here because I just anticipate he's gonna come in and say, what the hell are you doing here? So my wife says, fine. And she walks, she sort of takes off behind the motel, you know, uh, exploring. And there's me, and sure enough, the state trooper pulls in, and he, a uh, little guy with a sort of a state trooper swagger, gets out, and he's like, what the hell are you doing here? And I you know, launch into a tale of how completely harmless we are and we just came because, you know, creepy buildings and abandoned motels and all that. And he says, <clears throat> are there any weapons in the vehicle? <laughs> and I realize that either he has way overestimated or I have way underestimated the seriousness of this situation. And I say, uh, no, no, not dangerous, not dangerous, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, Try to explain, you know, we're just, my wife is just, uh, and he says, um, well, can you call your wife? And so, uh, I call her, but I say, stupidly, um, so most families I know have like a family whistle that the, that the family will respond to. <laughs> and so, yeah, I say, yeah. I can't whistle, because, you know, that's what happens when high anxiety. I whistle, I can do that actually, and, um, and I say to him stupidly, uh, she will respond to this whistle, you know. <laughs> and, so, and so he says, he says, hold on a moment. And he, he gets on his, uh, his two-way radio. And I hear mumble, 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 suspicious characters, mumble, 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 posted a lookout, mumble, mumble, mumble. <laughs> uh, 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 signaled to the other, mumble, mumble, mumble. <laughs> Partner fled, mumble, mumble, mumble. And he hangs up and he comes over to me and he puts his hand on my shoulder and with his other hand, he takes my arm behind my back, takes the other arm behind my back, holds both hands 
behind me and sort of with a sort of aggressive intimacy sort of frisks me all over <laughs> and then walks me over to the, to the cruiser and puts me in and says basically like, wait here, where else am I gonna wait? <laughs> so I'm in the cruiser and meanwhile, you know, two or three other Berlin cops have come up and my wife has come out the side and I see her and they're sort of talking to her and you know, the swaggery guy goes over and he's talking to her and I don't know what they're saying but she's kind of amused at the whole experience. <laughs> and then I note that the, the swaggery state trooper um, sort of suddenly turns around and comes back to the car and he opens the door and he says, you're free to go and sort of backpedaling, mumbles this sort of gibberish legalese, you know, like uh, uh, reasonable suspicion, suspicious character, cause to, you know, and he's going on about this sort of, and I realize what has happened. So I work in a law school and my wife was wearing my jacket with the law school insignia on it. <laughs> and I think what happened was he was there talking to her and he noticed the insignia and he suddenly thought consequences. <laughs> and he was like, wait here. So I, you know, he lets me out of the car. And so he lets me out of the car and walks away and I get out of the car like this. <laughs> and he, from across the parking lot, yells, you are not under arrest, put your hands down. <laughs> <laughs> Which I thought was a very amusing thing. And he lets us go. But I have to, uh, uh, you know, on a, on, so the whole story was bizarre and made for a good story, but I, you know, I have to also say uh, I am not unaware of the fact that this experience happened a couple of years ago in the shadow of uh, what happened in Ferguson, Missouri. And it's sort of important for me to remember, like I'm a, I'm a you know, middle-class white guy from Boston. If I was a different class or more importantly, a different race, this could have ended very differently. And uh, so I think it's sort of important for me to, Yikes, remember that. So that's all, thank you very much. And next up we have Lucy M. Lucy M in the house. Lucy! Hello. Um, so I grew up in New York in a pretty small town called Hastings on Hudson. Um, and yes, okay. So this story takes place when I was a uh, sophomore, summer going to sophomore year of high school. And this town's pretty small, we have like nothing to do. And I'm with my friend Joey. He's like this six foot tall, long brown, long brown, blonde hair. I'm like 15 years old, tiny. And so um, there's this place in the woods called Pad in Hastings. And it's where all the kids go to party because there's not much going on. No, like not, you can't really go to any houses. So that night we decide to go there. And um, so we're walking up to the woods. And we sit there for about an hour, and we're still pretty bored, no one's really there, so. And these woods were located right behind the elementary school. So we go down, um, this place is called Hillside, and I really, really had to pee. So um, we were like, let's just see if the school's open. So we check all the doors, like, it's so hot, Joey has like his sweater wrapped around his head. He's like, just looks so silly. And I'm like pulling on all the doors and like no doors open. And I finally go to the back door and the back door is open. So we go through, we're hanging out. We're like at the school at night, having so much fun. We go to the gym and like play some music. We're dancing and um, 
and we, we like go to the faculty lounge, we like take some ice cream. And so like finally I'm like, okay, I should pee, we should go. So we're in the faculty lounge and I'm peeing. Um, and so you go into the room and then in the back of the room there's the bathroom, so you have to go through like two doors. So I'm in the bathroom and then uh, Joey's like in the outside room. And then all of a sudden, Joey's just like, Lucy! I'm like, yeah, what, what? And he's like, the cops are here. And we're like, I'm like, oh shit. So I'm like, pee really quick, we leave. Um, we're about to go to the back door, we're heading out, and we're about to just like bust through open, and then this cop just shines his light in um, into the back door through the windows. And we like, we like quickly steer, we like fall, we turn around, and the cops are like confused because we thought, they thought we broke in because they had no idea how to get in. So, um, <laughs> so we're stuck in there. They're, in the out, they're out there and we, we like, there's this like metal lock on the door um, that you can just take off to get through the back door, but the back door is locked from the inside. So we were freaking out, we're like, there's no way we can get out. So finally Joey just like rips it off and we just run through the back door, through the woods, um, run through the town, takes like 10 minutes. And so, uh, <laughs> so, uh, and then, and then we're in the clear. We're like, yes, finally. So a week later, um, we're, we're free. We're like, no one was hurt, no one was caught. Uh, we look in the local newspaper, and um, there was the police report, and it said, Hillside Elementary School alarm was set off. Um, nothing was damaged or broken, and uh, no one was caught. Like, police are still looking. So I called Joey. We're like, Joey, we're in the clear, and everything was fine. So a couple weeks go by. And I go to Russia for summer, and I haven't thought about this once. And so finally I come back, and on my plane ride home, I like kind of knew my dad would be mad. I didn't know why, I just had this feeling. So we go, I go in the car, he picks me up, he's like, I haven't seen him for like two weeks, but it's still kind of weird. And so I just look on the dashboard, and it's like, Hastings Police. I'm like, shit. So, so we don't drive to the police station. That We, we, got, we drive straight to my high school, and... Um, I sit down in the room with my principal, and <laughs> he's just looking at uh, footage of Joey. It's like black and white, this like camera. Joey with his like sweater tied around, and I'm like pulling, and it's my dad next to me, and like my principal just looking at this footage, and they couldn't identify Joey, but they identified me because Joey was like, Lucy, Lucy. So <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> the other two Lucys in the school, because the principal obviously knows everyone, are like two years younger than me, and wouldn't like pull a stunt like this. So um, turns out not only did they send the police from my town, they send like three neighboring police towns because they thought we were like super high tech because they couldn't get in. And then they also, <laughs> they also sent a helicopter. So, <laughs> so me and my friend uh, subsequently got busted that night. But um, every once in a while, I like, see him. And uh, I haven't really talked to him in a while, but like we'll just from a distance from afar and uh, we'll be like you remember that time <laughs> he's like yeah and then we had to write statements too and our state for like when we had to go to court and um both of us wrote like we walked in the back door like we took some ice cream and then a helicopter came <laughs> so that that's how i got busted thank you <laughs> Wow, at least I don't have to follow Carrot under a pillow. 
I was a journalist for a long time, and I was in Karachi, Pakistan. And this happened pre-9-11, which is important. But you'll find out why in a minute. And um, let me tell you a little bit about Pakistan. I would say it's the most chaotic place I've ever been, except for Nigeria, and it's pretty much a tie. And it's kind of like there's absolutely no way to get from point A to point B, yet you always manage to get there. And nobody knows anything except when you must desperately know something and then everybody knows everything. <laughs> and Pakistanis are very proud of their food, which I stupidly would say, oh, it's a lot like Indian food. And they'd be like, no! <laughs> In India, chickens are like this. In Pakistan, chickens are like this. And then I'd have to listen to that for the rest of the night. So I was walking from the office I was w working into my hotel one day, and I hear somebody screaming, which isn't unusual until I realize that he's screaming at me. And I look over, and it's an old man with a long beard, and he looks really angry, and I sort of make eye contact with him and also shrug my shoulders, which thinking back on it, it was sort of like a combination Liam Neeson, Woody Allen move, <laughs> like kind of like, And for some reason, that only makes him angrier. And so I break eye contact with him and look away. And by this time, I see I'm surrounded by a bunch of people, a bunch of other younger guys, also with beards. And they're closing in closer and closer and closer, making a tighter circle around me. And this guy is yelling at me louder and louder. And I don't know what's going to happen. Police car pulls up. Now, post 9-11, it might not have been the most advisable thing in the middle of Karachi, Pakistan to, to look to, or, to the police for help. But at that time, they open the door and they say, get in. And I'm like, yeah, great. <laughs> so I get into the police car and I start thinking, did somebody call them or did they just show up, or are they in on it? And they start driving, and I start doing this thing, which I always do in my head. I had a childhood fear of getting kidnapped, which, you know, my parents were both school teachers, so I didn't quite understand the economics of kidnapping. <laughs> but um, I, since I was about seven or eight years old, I would do this thing where whenever I'm going somewhere I've never been before, I do the journey backwards in my head at the same time so that I figure if I manage to escape, I can always find my way home. So I start doing that. And then I start thinking, maybe I did do something wrong. I mean, I got into a lot of trouble once in Indonesia for holding my girlfriend's hand on the street. And I'm like, I don't know. Maybe they're busting me for something. Maybe I did something really bad. And I guess I'll find out when I get to the police station. Now, you know, a lot of people are advised in those kinds of situations to say, you know, take me to my embassy. But I've kind of found that that kind of antagonizes people most of the time. So I try to avoid doing that. So I'm waiting for them to take me to the police station. They're not saying a thing. They're staring straight ahead, driving. They don't take me to the police station. We go down a slightly quieter part of town. They pull over. 
one of them turns and looks at me and says, just don't go back there. And they let me out of the car. And when people ask me about this story now, the first question is always, well, what was the guy yelling at you about? The answer is, I don't know. The second question is, why didn't you ask the cops? And the answer is, because at that moment, my priority was to kind of extricate myself from the situation. And the third question is, were you scared? No. I mean, I'm more scared asking a woman in spin class out for coffee after the spin class. <laughs> it's different, I think, than like a soldier going into battle where you know the risks and you know what could happen. And in that kind of situation, like fear at best is a distraction. So it only becomes scary afterwards. And anyway, I don't really think my wit at that time got me out of the situation, but the kindness of two police officers in Pakistan who in their own way were kind to me and almost definitely saved me from some type of physical altercation or physical harm, and who knows, may have even saved my life. The name, our last name for the night is Michael Doherty. Michael Doherty. Woo! Hi, everybody. Hi. Susan F. told a story about a husband I'm that husband. <laughs> Busted. <laughs> when I was uh, 20, uh, I went uh, to get a job at the college job board, and I saw a sign up on the thumb tacked up that said, mystery shopper. I thought, now that sounds kind of fun, because I always wanted to be a diplomat, and it sounded like spying. And <laughs> I'd sort of realized that I had a problem with authority figures and I wasn't really charming and, uh, you know, spying and being a diplomat really wasn't the thing that I would ever end up doing. But mystery shopper, that sounded fun. <laughs> so I applied and it was for Aubon Pan. And the job was to go evaluate the food and the service and the cleanliness of all the Boston Aubon pans at various intervals. So I'd ride my bike around um, and I'd eat the croissants and the coffee and fill out these little forms and I was really good at it. And I loved it and I thought, this could be a career. And it turns out, it's like diplomacy. I mean, you're undercover and it's exciting. And anyway, there's also other places that do it like Applebee's and Chili's, you know? really fun places that could sustain you in a career of mystery shopping. And anyway, um, it got to the point where one of my shops was at the Harvard Business School Fitness Center Cafe. And this was different to all the other Aubon pants. All the other Aubon pants don't have a cash bar. But this being Harvard and, you know, the business school fitness center, you have to have a cash bar at your Aubon Pan, apparently. So age 20, it occurred to me that the only people in the Harvard Business School Fitness Center Cafe would almost certainly be over 21. And this would be the ideal place 
to drink underage. So my friend Zach and I went to the Harvard Business School Fitness Center Cafe to do the Aubon Pan Mystery Center shop, <laughs> undercover, mullets, parachute pants, you know, your typical Harvard business look. There's Mitt Romney and George Bush and Sheryl Sandberg and all these, you know, luminaries, these, the very school where you learn the architecture of greed. Here I am, mystery shopping at undercover, evaluating the food and the service and the cleanliness and a big picture of Sam Adams ordered underage with my friend Zach. It was perfect. I had it all thought out. But they busted us. They busted us for underage drinking and said, you know, you can't do that. Get out. Don't ever come back, which I had no problem with because <laughs> that wasn't going to happen anyway. Uh, anyway, two weeks later, I got a, a phone call from my boss at Aubon Pan, the mystery shopper. Like, Q, I'd never met this person. He said, Mike, I need to talk to you about something. Do you want the good news or the bad news? I'm like, well, I know the bad news. You're firing me, right? Just, yeah, we're firing you for, for that little incident at Harvard Business School Fitness Center Cafe. But the good news is, you did your job so well, we're going to give you an award. It's the Aubon Pan Mystery Shopper Achievement Award. <laughs> like, <laughs> okay, great. Now I got a line on my resume that says, you know, under that line for academic awards and honors, which was vacant. Now I could fill in Aubon Pan Mystery Shopper Achievement Award. <laughs> it was a disposable fountain pen. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Mosquito Story Slam podcast. The Mosquito is produced by Tidal Theatre Company, Vanessa Vardabedian, and Caitlin Langstaff. Find your next opportunity to join us live at facebook.com slash mosquitostoryslam and listen to our podcast on soundcloud.com slash mosquitostoryslam. Tell your friends, take a chance, and bite it live. Yeah.